pastor here at Gateway Community Church, and uh, that's why I keep on getting up and saying things. Um, So if you're visiting, that's who I am. That's why I'm here. Well, um, I'm sure all of you heard, especially those of you who are from Wisconsin, that recently the Badgers head coach, Gary Anderson, left the UW to go to Oregon State. He's now an Oregon State Beaver, which kind of seems like a step down, but I guess I won't, I won't bother him too much about that. Um, but anyway, because he left, there was this void, obviously, on the Badgers football team. They needed a new head coach. And uh, so they took applications for the job, and they ended up getting 46 people to apply for the job, one of them, one of, them of course, being uh, Paul Christ, who ultimately was chosen for the job. Um, but they got a lot of others that kind of came out of left field. For example, one, uh, and by the way, we know this because these records are public, because it's a public school. And one of the men who applied for the job, by the name of Jared Dan from Arizona, called himself on his resume, the man, the myth, the legend. And he said that he was qualified to be the head coach at the UW because he was, quote, ridiculously good at NCAA football for Xbox 360, which, if you don't know, is a video game. So he's a really good video game player, and so thus he should be the head coach of Wisconsin. Another man by the name of Arturo said that he should be the coach because his wife, quote, makes a mean Gatorade. (laughs) Those are his qualifications. Another guy said he looks great. He should get the job because he looks great in sideline attire, believes in karma, and is a superb yeller. Very good at yelling at players and referees, I guess. (laughs) Lastly, a man by the name of Justin said that he should get the job because he was at one time a high school punter, and he had once met a former NFL player at a nightclub. All right? (laughs) Now, I don't know how, but somehow Paul Christ beat these guys out for the job. (laughs) You know, he was the the offensive coordinator here at Wisconsin, and he was the head coach for Pitt, and for some reason they decided these qualifications were better. (laughs) But anyway, I'm not telling this story just because I'm a fan of the Badgers, but I want to talk about the qualifications of Jesus Christ. What is it that makes him worthy of our worship? Why should we devote two days every year, Christmas Eve and Christmas, to his birth, and another day to his death, and another day to his resurrection? What makes him worthy of this? Even more, what makes him worthy of giving our entire lives over to him? He's got to be qualified for that kind of status, you would think. And so that's what we're going to look at today. What are his qualifications? And to start to answer this question, I want to begin with the obvious. And that is that Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship because of his greatness. I think I say this is obvious because we tend to worship those who are greater than us, right? You don't don't see LeBron James picking out that one kid in the crowd and saying, that guy's my idol. No, the, the kids... Say, LeBron James is my idol because he's a greater basketball player than I could ever imagine being. You see, we we worship those who are greater. And Jesus, the way he's described in the Bible, is far greater 
than any person who has ever walked this earth. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to give us a list of biblical descriptions of Jesus. And you may not understand every reference I make. That's okay. What I want you to do is is just to kind of feel the cumulative effect of these descriptions of Jesus so you know just how great, just how high and mighty he is. First of all, we see in Scripture that he is the Son of God. He is the great I Am, Yahweh. He's the one and only Son of the Father. He is eternal. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the uncreated creator of all things. When he speaks, things that once did not exist suddenly exist. Planets, stars, galaxies, and supergalaxies were created with but a word from his mouth. He is immortal, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But that's not all. He is the eternal king. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. He is the king of kings. He is the king of heaven. He is the king of glory. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. He is the millennial king. He is the sovereign king. The king of ages. The king of the nations. The promised king of Israel. The king of the Jews. And he is king over all the earth. But that's not all. He is the Lord of lords. The Lord of hosts of angels the Lord of all creation, the Lord of all the earth, the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of the harvest, Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of peace and glory, and He is Lord of all. He is the God of gods. He is the God who sees all. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Jacob. He is the God of our salvation, the God of life. He's the God of vengeance who gives justice to the poor and the oppressed. He is the righteous judge. He is the glorious one whose glory is too great for humans to endure. And he is of unmatched beauty. But that's not all. He is the defeater of our enemies. He is the commander of demons. He is the crusher of the serpent's head. Angels surround his throne, worshiping him all day, every day. He can walk in a fiery furnace without being burned. He can take an army of 300 men and have it defeat an army of 135,000. He can take the children of one man and turn it into a mighty nation with as many descendants as there is sand on the seashore and stars in the sky. He can by his power throw mountains into the sea. He is the light of the world. He is the hope to the nations. The earth is his footstool and the heavens are his tabernacle. And he can see inside to the thoughts and hearts of man. But that's not all. The government is upon his shoulders. He is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Under his rule, there will be no end to peace. And his rule will be punctuated by justice and righteousness forever and ever and ever. Which is something that this world has never seen and will never see apart from him. This is all that Jesus Christ was and is. To summarize, he can do all things. He knows all things. He has authority over all things. He created all things. He sustains all things. And he will judge all people. There is nothing outside of his sovereign control. And based on these descriptions, there is literally nothing higher. Nobody more worthy 
of our attention and devotion and worship and lives. But that's not all. As amazing as all of that is, there's more. You see, most religions will tout the power and strength of their God or gods. And I think all religions believe in some way that their God has created what exists today. But there is something else that sets Jesus apart from any other king or Lord or God or any any other thing that we could worship. There's something else that makes him more qualified to receive your praise. Because on Christmas, we celebrate that this infinite, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God became an infant. The Creator took on a created body. He was still God in every meaning of the term, but He also became a man. And in so doing, He shows us not just His greatness, but His goodness. His humility, even, by becoming a man. Now, I think sometimes when we hear this, we, you know, we're, we're told so often that, that human beings are at the top of the food chain, right? We are the, the epitome of evolution thus far. And so we can be tempted to think that for Jesus to become a man was not all that big a deal. But when you reflect on just who Jesus is, like we just did, when you see how he's described over and over again, what we see is that Jesus was sacrificing more than we can ever know when he was born that first Christmas day. In fact, I tried for a long time to think of an analogy of, you know, when Christ lowered himself, what would that be like for us if we lowered ourselves? How could we lower ourselves in the same way that Jesus did? And so I started to try to think of these analogies, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe it would be like if, if I became, voluntarily became an ant. You know, an ant that, that is, you know, comparatively much weaker than a person and, and much smaller and could be crushed at any moment. And I thought, well, maybe this is kind of a good analogy. But of course, I'm not the creator of ants. Right? I, I, didn't, I didn't form them and make them. I don't have that kind of, of authority over them. And so it's, it, it, the analogy just doesn't quite stick. And so then I started thinking, well, maybe, maybe it would be like a person becoming a, a robot. You know, you make, we, we as humans, we make robots. We create them in a sense. And so maybe if I became like that, but of course that doesn't work either because the robot is not alive in any real sense of the word. And so I kept on thinking. This is what I do during my job during the day. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this is probably my best analogy, though it's still incomplete. I thought maybe it would be like if Bill Gates, who is still the richest man on earth with a net, net worth of $76 billion, maybe what Jesus w- did would be like if Bill Gates voluntarily just sold everything and moved to a third world country and lived amongst the poorest of the poor. This analogy does, after all, kind of fit with what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, when he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so in this way it does fit. It's a fitting analogy, but even this analogy, I think, can be stretched too far. 
Because Jesus was infinitely rich and infinitely glorious. He didn't give up a mere $76 billion. He had to give up what was priceless, heaven and all its glory. He had to take his perfect self and completely link it to this flawed body that would be weak, that would break down, that would die and decay. That is what Jesus did. He went from infinite to something, not from something to something less. If this wasn't enough, Jesus was born with lot, without a lot of the benefits and comforts that our world had to offer. He wasn't born to royalty. Rather, he was born to young and impo- impoverished nobodies. Nobody knew Joseph and Mary. Jesus' parents, in fact, were so poor that Luke tells us that when they went to the temple, which is what Chuck wrote, read for us, when they went to the temple, they had to buy doves or pigeons, which only the poorest of the poor would do. Otherwise, they would sacrifice a goat or a lamb or a bull. They had to buy just a little dove. They were poor. That's the family that Jesus was born into. Beyond this, as you probably know, Jesus didn't exactly have luxury accommodations when he was born. I think I had heard that when Beyonce and, uh, is it Jay-Z she's married to? should have checked this with you before. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, when they had their baby, they rented out a whole penthouse suite on the top of a building with this beautiful view where they could get away from paparazzi and all of this. But Jesus wasn't born in a penthouse. He was literally born in a barn. <laughs> and he was laid in a little manger filled with straw. I mean, just think about that. He went from sitting at the right hand of God on a throne to being laid in a manger, a feed trough. We could go even further because he didn't have a birth that was announced to the rich and famous. There wasn't, uh, you know, a a, a paparazzi peeking around the corner when he was born trying to get the first shot of the amazing celebrity baby. His picture didn't make its way into magazines. Rather, when he was born, the angels went to a hillside and found some common, uneducated shepherds to tell the news to. Christ is born this day. But again, these were nobodies that they were telling. And from there, his life didn't get any more enviable. His parents had to flee from Bethlehem to to avoid King Herod, who wanted Jesus killed. God of the universe! Mighty, infinite, powerful, fleeing from a king because he's just a baby. We go on and we find that he lived a rather obscure childhood and early adulthood. We told there was really nothing special about him. He he wasn't handsome or or buff or fashionable. He was just a blue-collar worker. He worked as a carpenter, which is a fine job, but you, you wouldn't expect that from God. Certainly not what the Jewish people expected. They wanted a king or a military leader. They wanted someone who would kick butt and take names. That's not what they got. To use Jesus' own words, he came as one who is meek and lowly of heart. Jesus came in the most surprising and wonderful way. He came in absolute humility. You see, A God could be great. A God could be infinitely powerful, but he could also then be infinitely awful. 
Absolute power without absolute humility will result in absolute evil. But the wondrous thing about our God is that he shows us his perfect humility by being born as an impoverished, virtually unknown child. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians 2, 5-7, through 7, saying, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not cling to his equality with God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, the beauty of the Christian message is that Jesus Christ is not just worthy of our worship because of his power, but also because he voluntarily released his hold on that power by becoming a created creature or taking on a created body. Even more compelling is that this almighty, awe-inspiring God was so humble that he died. And not just any death, but a death on the cross. We just read Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, Jesus' humility didn't just end in that manger. It went all the way to its necessary conclusion when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died the same way he was born, in humility. And it's this that makes him worthy of your worship, your praise, and your very lives. He is not just powerful, he is good. As the late John Stott wrote, I can never myself believe in God if we're not for the cross. And I would add an incarnation to that. He goes on to say, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God my life. And I hope that you know today that it's because God loves you that he subjected himself to such humiliation and pain. Without you, he wouldn't have done it. Because he has focused his love on you and not just on himself, he was willing to send Jesus, the sinless Savior, to die the death that we deserve as sinners. You see, this is how you can know the depths of the love that God has for you. He didn't have to experience pain. He didn't have to condescend. He didn't have to die a humiliating death. But he did. For you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's, for me at least, so moving to think of what you have done. Lord, anyone can dream up a powerful God. Anyone can say, yeah, I believe someone created all of this. 
but to know that you entered into pain with us. That you became like us in every way except for sin. And to know that you did this because of your overwhelming love for us, Lord. What a moving thing that is. What a transformative thing that is, Lord. We cannot, when we grasp what you have done for us, Lord, we cannot remain the same. And so, Lord, would you transform our hearts tonight? If there are any here today who, before now, did not know your greatness and your goodness, Lord, if they have put their faith in you, Lord, I thank you that you will save them. Shine your, your light into our dark hearts, Lord, and change us, transform us, make us new creations who will live to please and honor our good and great God. And Lord, we thank you for sending your Son. And as we go on in worship, I pray that we will be filled with thanksgiving for what it is you have done for us. May these not just be songs, but may we worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Well, before we sing our songs, I want to give you instructions on how we're going to light our candles. Uh, we do a candlelight service, and so we're going to sing many of our songs uh, by candlelight. And what we're going to do is I'm going to light my candle first, and then I'm going to go down each row. And what I ask, or I'm, I'm going to go to each of you and then than uh, each of you on the sides. What I ask you to do is before you light the person's candle next to you, light the person's candle behind you, okay? Unless you're in the back row, then don't do it. Um, so I'll say it one more time. Before you light the person next to you, light the person's behind you, and then we'll just kind of keep filling it in, and we'll turn the lights down after uh, a song or two.